This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Mean Girl, Anne Rand in the Culture of Greed by Lisa Dugan. Anne Rand's complicated notoriety as popular writer, leader of a political and philosophical cult, reviled intellectual, and ostentatious public figure endured beyond her death in 1982. In the 21st century, she has been resurrected as a serious reference point for mainstream figures, especially those on the political right, from Paul Ryan to Donald Trump. Mean Girl follows Rand's trail through the 20th century, from the Russian Revolution to the Cold War, and traces her posthumous appeal and the influence of her novels via her cruel, surly, sexy heroes. Outlining the impact of Rand's philosophy of selfishness, Mean Girl illuminates the Randian shape of our neoliberal contemporary culture of greed and the dilemmas we face in our political present. Mean Girl, Anne Rand and the Culture of Greed, by Lisa Dugan, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I don't have time for a super involved intro today, so I'll just say this. DSA's explosive growth continues. It's already, in a few short years, become the center of a renewed American socialist movement. My guest today, Doug Henwood, has lots of thoughts on what's happening with DSA and why, because he recently published a lengthy article in the New Republic entitled The Socialist Network. Inside DSA's struggle to move into the political mainstream. Before we get rolling, this is a straightforward request for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to this show regularly and can afford to contribute a few bucks a month, please do so. It's the support of listeners precisely like you that allows us to provide all of our episodes for free to those who can't afford to support us. And if you donate $10 or more, we will send you left-wing book swag in the mail. We have a lot of good books to send you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I get an email every time a new contribution is made. So if you've been meaning to contribute but haven't gotten around to doing it, make my day a joyous one by ensuring this podcast's long-term survival at patreon.com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Doug Henwood, an economic journalist and host of the weekly Jacobin radio show, Behind the News, which originates on KPFA Berkeley. His books include Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom, and My Turn, Hillary Clinton Targets the Presidency. He published Left Business Observer from 1986 to 2013, and he is now engaged in a study of the rot of the American ruling class. 
Doug Henwood, welcome to The Dig. Uh, it's good to be here. This is really overdue because I don't know if I've ever told you this, but in many ways, this podcast is very much modeled off of your podcast, of which I'm a longtime listener. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I feel like um, I've helped spawn a whole generation of young leftists who can <laughs> reap you know, all the glory uh, that those of us who kept the flame alive during the dark days <laughs> uh, didn't, didn't get in very large quantities. Proud to be a spawn. Um, a, a general question before we get into a lot of specifics. What is DSA and why has it very quickly become not only the largest socialist organization in the U.S., but also the primary organizational point of reference for this bigger thing that's happening when socialism is all of a sudden a real force in American politics for the first time in a long time? Uh, DSA, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, goes back, uh, I believe, to the early 80s, a uh, product of a, a merger between the uh, Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, which was founded by Michael Harrington. And um, the old DSA uh, in, uh, reflected a lot of you know, Harrington's politics, which were social democratic. Very, I mean, you know, there's a lot to admire about Michael Harrington, but uh, he also had his limits. He's kind of anti-communist. Um, rather infatuated with uh, taking over the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, you know, there's a sort of Cold War-ish uh, feel to DSA that put people like me off for a long, long time. And it remained rather small. Um, and going into the period of its, just before its great explosion uh, in membership, um, it was fairly old membership. It was almost a naturally occurring retirement community. I'm called though, the, uh, the young wing, the uh, young DSA people uh, often had much livelier politics and, and interesting conferences. I spoke at a few of those way back when, but then the <clears throat> the grown-up <clears throat> that was like the youth uh, contingent. But then the grown-ups uh, were had really fairly tedious politics, and it um, there was almost a, a morbid, morose quality to it. And then somehow, and I don't think I was even aware of DSA really when I got involved in the radical left in the. The 1990s. I mean, not only was, you know, th there, there were left things happening at that time, like the anti-globalization movement, but, but organized socialists as a whole were not even really at the center of that. And DSA wasn't even one of the groups I was aware of as being in the mix. No, I mean, they had, uh, <laughs> I, I guess their membership was probably larger than the ISOs, but I think the ISO, since given all its activity on campuses, which was much more visible. Somehow, uh, the founding of Jacobin Magazine, 2011, really uh, sort of kick-started some interest in socialism among a, uh, among a younger demographic. People started trickling into uh, DSA at that point. Pascar Sankara joined, uh, I think what he's in the year between high school and college. Um, and, but it was still quite small. And then um, it was the Sanders uh, campaign that really got things rolling. Uh, the whole Sanders somehow uh, created this awareness about socialism. It had not really previously existed <laughs> beyond a very small uh, network of, of fairly marginal uh, groups and people. That brought in thousands and thousands of new members. And then um, AOC's victory uh, brought in another uh, wad of members. And also Trump's victory, because while Bernie Bernie highlighted socialism, Trump highlighted 
barbarism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the, that old alternative, socialism or bar- barbarism, acquired new life. Uh, yeah, and I think you know the the uh, like things like the uh, the airport um, occupations um, just after Trump announced his uh, immigration restrictions uh, also really helped kickstart the membership. So it went from I think just under five thousand to where it is now, fifty six thousand, in a couple of bursts. And they're they're almost you can almost it's, it's like, almost like a geological exercise. You can uh, there, there's like generations of membership in DSA now. There's the the pre-Jacobin crowd, um, which is fairly small and fairly now now fairly um, vestigial. Uh, there are the people who joined during the Jacobin years, uh, you know, the, like 2011, 12, 13, which is sort um, of around then, the, what was called the Left Caucus at the time. Yeah, uh, and there, there's, there's some of the, those people who joined then were really actively trying to push DSA to the left. Their, their caucuses then uh, went through a series of evolutions. And, Which we'll get to later, uh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, then there, of course, are the people who came in um, uh, during the, uh, the after the Sanders and AOC uh, campaigns and the, and the great anxiety around Trump. Uh, but this, there's a weird kind of almost generational conflict within DSA that uh, takes form of various caucuses within the organization. I don't want to ag- exaggerate the, 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 the disputes, but you know, they, they, they are uh, somewhat significant. And, uh, but there's, you know, people now who are in their earlier mid thirties feel like they're senior citizens within the organization. Cause you know, if I, when I, I go atta- to a meeting, I can attest to that <laughs> as a 36 year old. <laughs> oh, okay. I was wondering how old you were. Yeah. I mean, when I go to meetings at the North Brooklyn, uh, branch, I'm, I'm a member of it's, uh, I don't know, 25, 27 seems to be the median age. I don't know, something like that. Uh, and almost no one. I have a friend uh, who's been sort of one of my guides in DSA who is 51. She says she feels like a senior citizen. And uh, there's almost no one uh, between the age of you know 35 or under the age of 35 that, that's at all visible in, in DSA. Well, as, as a quick aside, when I was at a Sanders kickoff event in my neighborhood just to kind of see what the the early stage organizing looked like and there were a ton of young people you know 18 or so through through thir- maybe early 30s and then a decent number of pretty old people as well um which is not like DSA but then no one in between <laughs> yeah well you know i think that's true of a lot of left politics in general that there's just there's just you know baby boomers uh who remember the 60s uh and then the, the vast gap that occurred uh for the next couple of decades the gen x wasteland this... yeah 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 my, my wife liza featherstone uh once thought of uh doing a blog called my crappy generation <laughs> uh they're just you know very apolitical um cohort that is now largely um, sort of escaping uh, all this kind of generationally oriented uh, um, commentary that uh, that is proliferating. So what made DSA the ready organizational container for this this historical moment that emerged, given all of the organizations that are out there? Is that due in significant part to the work that the Left Caucus was doing to move the organization to the left? Because it seems unlikely that that energy would have gone towards an organization that looked a lot like the one that Michael Harrington initially built. Yeah. I, I, I've heard a couple of theories on that. One is actually people just uh, heard Bernie Sanders talk about democratic socialism. They Googled it and found DSA. <laughs> I don't doubt um, that. <laughs> so I, I think that may be part of the story uh, because, you know, 
going into that uh, membership explosion, even with that that generation, the Jacobin generation coming in, it was not really a, a vital organization. A lot of the old guard was you know, um, really kind of sticking to the old Harrington way of doing things. So yeah, I think it it just was there. I don't know exactly um, what precisely uh, was the magic that attracted all these you know, hordes of young people to DSA, but it's been uh, a remarkable, um, remarkable explosion in membership. The DSA of old was in many ways, as you mentioned, focused on realigning the Democratic Party. In other words, taking it over. Today's DSA is certainly notable compared to other socialist groups for its openness to running candidates on the Democratic Party ballot line. But today's orientation isn't generally speaking about realignment. It's something a lot more instrumentalist. What is DSA's approach? Obviously, there's no monolithic approach, but but what is, generally speaking, the approach, and what's its track record been? This article I wrote for the New Republic uh, was commissioned when uh, the editors saw some Facebook posts I'd made uh, that uh, wondering if DSA could accomplish with the Democratic Party what uh, the conservatives did uh, with the Republicans. and The Buckleyites. Uh, yeah, there's this, uh, a fairly famous quote from Ronald Reagan talking to CPAC uh, in 1976, where he said, do you know, we, can we uh, turn this from a party of pale pastels into something, you know, more, more, more brightly colored. And that was just kind of like middle of this, the right's real big move into the Republican party. You know, I, I was a conservative in my early years in college. I was a member of the party of the right at Yale in 1971. And there were about a dozen of us. It was really strange. Uh, people thought we were odd. Uh, conservatism <laughs> seemed dead. And then 10 years later, Reagan was elected president. So there's, uh, I'm just looking back at that trajectory. I was thinking, wow, can we do the same thing on the left now? Uh, so I was wondering precisely what the strategy was uh, in the relationship of the DSA and what, you know, what, what indeed people in it were thinking about long-term strategy. I did about 30, 35 interviews uh, for the piece, and almost everyone uh, agreed that the Democratic Party was indeed a capitalist party. A lot of um, far-left critiques of DSA, uh, Trotskyists in particular, like like to say, well, all these DSA people are running as Democrats. Don't they understand that the Demo- that Democratic Party is a snare and the death of all kinds of <laughs> social like, yes, movements? Yes. <laughs> um, well, in fact, they do understand that. Uh, but it's a very instrumentalist view of the Democratic Party. It's a vehicle to rent and not own. The American ballot law makes it nearly impossible uh, for a third party to get anywhere near a ballot, uh, and even if you can get on. I mean, the, the dominance of the two-party system is so profound, um, not just organizationally, but you know, ideologically as well, uh, and habitually. It's almost a reflex, you know, which party are you in? There's only two choices. It's really, really hard to uh, develop anywhere outside of that two-party system. Uh, Seth Ackerman wrote a piece for Jacobin a few years ago uh, in which he um, proposed something not unlike the, uh, you know, the strategy that DSA is following, that you can have a party outside the two-party system that you know, sort of functions as a party, but in fact is not electorally a party that can then you know, run. Um, you know, maybe as a green sometime, or maybe you know as an independent, but also as a Democrat. Uh, and uh, I think we've seen a bunch of uh, candidates. Uh, from DSA running as Democrats at local level, mostly so far. But even though Sanders himself never been a Democrat, actually ran as an elector for the Socialist Workers Party and coming from Vermont in 1980. So he's you know never been a member in any sense of the Democratic Party. But uh, you can just 
if you get enough, you can enter a primary and run, or if you can get enough petitions, uh, signatures, you can enter as a Democrat, even if you've got no long-time relationship with the party. But you know, this is the, the weird nature of the American political party, is that it's not what is conventionally understood as a party in the rest of the world. These are membership-based you know, organizations with ideologies and programs and, and some kind of um, policy and, and uh, membership discipline. Uh, there's nothing like that in, in, in our party systems. You know, at the very top, there are these big fundraising mechanisms and fund distribution mechanisms. But anybody can run as a Democrat. If I wanted to run as a Democrat for, you know, any, in, in my district in Brooklyn, Chuck Schumer couldn't stop me. I mean, there's, and, you know, they, the party can put its thumb on the scale as it did in, in the case of, of the Sanders campaign, but they couldn't stop him from running as a Democrat and actually disrupting the Democratic Party uh, and uh, in ways that obviously make Nancy Pelosi very uncomfortable. I, I'm, you know, that look on her face the morning after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Crowley uh, in the primary. I mean, she looked shell-shocked and confused. She didn't know what to say or do. It's not her party entirely anymore. And uh, the Democratic leadership is still trying to figure out what to do about that. So yeah, the, uh, the idea is that the party is something to use, that the ballot line is a great asset that cannot be uh, easily duplicated. But that doesn't mean you have to uh, genuflect in the direction of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi all the time. Well, it's an irony that the two-party system simultaneously makes it very difficult, in many cases totally impossible, to compete with either of the two major parties externally as a third party, but it's incredibly vulnerable internally. Yeah, uh, the political scientist uh, Adam Hilton has written uh, on this, and he says that the, the party structures in the U.S. are rather porous um, that, um, and, and flexible. So uh, you know, the Republican Party does sometimes rep- exhibit a considerable degree of party discipline. You know, Mitch McConnell runs his Senate pretty pretty strongly, but on the other hand, you know they had that Tea Party rebellion a few years ago, which was half a grassroots thing and half a phony thing. But uh, they did manage to um, you know, enter primaries, primary uh, uh, people they thought of been sufficiently conservative, and really push the party to the right. I think we're we're seeing something not exactly parallel, but something you know, reminiscent uh, with, with this move at the left within the Democratic Party. It's causing leadership a good deal of consternation. And to uh, watch mostly orthodox uh, presidential candidates uh, have to pretend that they're for Medicare for all. You know, they, they're coming up with these <laughs> sort of Medicare for some uh, schemes, um, but you know, they have to pretend. Uh, and you, know, you have somebody like Kamala Harris having to say that she's not a socialist. The Bush advisor, uh, Matthew Dowd, once said, uh, if you argue against us while using our language, we're winning. And I think we're seeing, you know, we're not, I wouldn't say the left is exactly winning, but it's certainly moved the, the polls of the debate substantially to the left. And it's, it's just a remarkable thing to watch in, in such a short period of time. And Sanders, as you mentioned, is really a model for this instrumentalist approach. You write, quote, Sanders would have been a marginal curiosity had he run as an independent. And this is something I know well as an unrepentant Nader 2000 activist. I was 17 years old. I'll never apologize for it. But it's very clear, retrospectively, like who terrified, what approach terrified the corporate democratic establishment more, Nader's or Sanders? Well, uh, you know, they're still they're still complaining about uh, about uh, about Nader, and they're still complaining about Jill Stein now. You know, somehow Jill Stein is what delivered uh, Donald Trump the presidency to some of these lunatics. Uh, but you know, I, I just parenthetically, Nader, you know, 
given his prominence and uh, he did many, many admirable things over the years, you know, he, but he had these, what, three kind of chimerical presidential campaigns and left nothing behind. He was completely hot. Well, he's deeply hostile to building institutions. He ran as a green. He could have built that party, given his name recognition, uh, but he, he didn't. So we don't really know what, you know what the Green Party could have become had Ralph Nader devoted some of his uh, energies to building that uh, as anything but you know, just a, a vanity vehicle for his presidential runs. But the Greens have been at it in many states for a long, long time, and they still uh, are barely holding on to uh, their, their ballot status. You know, in, in New York State, which has probably the worst election laws in the country, you have to get 50,000 votes for your gubernatorial candidate uh, to stay on the ballot, and they really have a hard time doing that. And we've seen people run as Greens in the, for city council in New York. You know, you'd think that... Uh, a city council race is fairly achievable. It's not you know, not on, on, on the scale of, of a, even a you know a house campaign, but uh, it's nearly impossible for a green to do that too. So it's um, they've been trying for a long time and failing. And uh, you know the greens will always complain, somewhat like the Trotskyists do, that uh, the, the DSA people are falling prey to this uh, the evil seductions of the Democratic Party, but there's not much of an alternative. It's it's a horrible thing, and I hope we could change the electoral law and get all kinds of different, you know, proportional or ranked choice or all these other schemes for, for, for opening up the ballot, but as long as we're in this institutional structure that we're in, we, I don't, it's, it's really hard to think of an alternative to the Democratic Party as as a vehicle, not, you know, not, not as uh, something um, to uh, hit your... your, your uh, your wagon to. My uh, friend Draka Larimore Hall, who is a uh, uh, vice chair of the California Democratic Party, and a you know, serious socialist and a uh, member of DSA for a long time, uh, wants DSA people to become Democrats formally. And uh, there's some kind of structure within the, uh, the California Democratic Party that would allow uh, for a kind of socialist caucus within the California Democratic Party. And a lot of the positions of that party are very progressive, at least on paper. But uh, I brought that possibility up to um, a lot of people I talked with, and there's just no interest at all in getting that close <laughs> to the Democratic Party, because I think you Never. Know, it's, it's, it's a contagious or a communicable disease, I guess, to get too close to it. Well, the left's instrument, I get why the left's instrumentalism bugs Democrats, but it, it's sort of like tough shit, because it, the dynamic is the fault of a two-party system that we hate it's not you know it's not like we were like oh yeah we'd rather we'd rather not have our own party and we'd rather just take over yours instead yeah on you know uh and if you enter something like that who will take over whom i mean it's that's why this this the studied distance uh that people have been keeping with the party is is really um so far proving a, a fruitful strategy who knows how it'll work out over the longer term but for now it's 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 very promising and um uh, the, Look at Chicago. Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's the, that's an amazing thing. Uh, you know, six city council members out of fifty are now DSA people. Um, that's you know, over a tenth of the Chicago city council is, is self-identified socialists. Um, and I talked to Rosanna Rodriguez at some length when I was working on the piece, and you know, she is the real thing, um, yeah. and uh, very very impressive to have somebody like that in the city council of, of, of Chicago. Is, um, Five years ago, one couldn't have imagined it, uh, but here we are. Uh, you know, and I have to wonder, you know, I always used to think that having a Democrat 
in the White House was better for the left because you could say, see, even with a Democrat in the White House, some things still really suck. Uh, and you know, that was Gary Will's uh, explanation of why the 60s exploded was that uh, during the 50s, all these you know, Democrats and liberals would say, um, you know, it's just Eisenhower. If we could only get a Democrat in the White House, everything would be so much better. And then JFK got in and things weren't better. And so people like, were open to more radical um, alternatives. And LBJ unleashes mass murder across <laughs> yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was, if I think, a mini echo of that in the 90s uh, with the growth of the anti-globalization movement in Seattle and Definitely. all that stuff, too, that, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, after all those years of Reagan and Bush, we thought we got it, finally got you know, a good Democrat in the White House, and he, he was just terrible. And so people were willing to look at uh, more radical alternatives. But now, I don't know, I, I really wonder if had Hillary Clinton won uh, in 2016, would we be seeing this? I kind of think not. I think um, I think there's no clear rule rule here because Bush was horrible for the left. Yeah, the combination of the Sanders campaign plus Trump. Uh, Trump is so appalling in so many ways uh, that uh, I think it shocked a lot of people into wanting to do something. Uh, whereas, I don't know, a Hillary presidency could have just provoked a shrug of resignation. And just here we go again. Uh, in some, Susan Sarandon was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I I, 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 can get, I can get crucified for saying that, but I, you know, we really know, have to think seriously about whether that's the case or not. And uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. I never told it. You know, I wrote uh, an article for Harper's denouncing Hillary. I turned into a little book denouncing Hillary, and um, I, I um, but I never told anyone not to vote for her. I, mean, I completely understand uh, the, the lesser evil strategy up to a point. Uh, but, um, you know, maybe I was wrong. And that's, that's one issue uh, for, for DSA, though, and you know, people who are playing this electoral game from the left. When the right was on the rise, uh, they had no qualms about uh, running spoiler campaigns. Uh, when Bill Buckley ran for the mayor of New York City in 1965, he did so in part to destroy the liberal republicanism that John Lindsay represented. Uh, and he didn't care if that would deliver the election to a Democrat. He was much more in- intent on destroying um, the liberal Republican tendency. You, know, you could even think of the, the Goldwater campaign. They were very happy to run a, 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 what turned out to be a losing campaign, a massively losing campaign, because they thought it would build um, in 64. Yeah, their power over the longer term. And, you know, Goldwater got hammered, but 16 years later, Ronald Reagan was elected. So, you know, there's this willingness to take electoral risks with extreme positions uh, that um, the, the right um, exhibited in its rise to, to, to power. Uh, and I'm not sure that people on the left would uh, want to duplicate that. Uh, Chris Mazzano, um, who is on the a Jacobin uh, person and also on the National Political Committee of DSA, um, I, I asked him about the, the, the spoiler strategy, and he said a lot of people on the left are afraid that uh, should, if a Republican wins, it will just damage uh, you know, poor people um, in ways that distress them immensely, and they wouldn't want to pull the, uh, the, the, uh, the use the uh, the spoiler strategy. And that's true. The right doesn't have to worry about harming poor people because they don't care about poor people. No, they don't. You know, <laughs> and, but they, on the other hand, they also have. This is one thing about the right wing strategy that I really envy, and I'm not sure that we could we have anything comparable on the left. But you know, if you go back 
to the late 40s with the funding of the Mont Pelerin Society and then um, the, 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 the Koch brothers starting in the 70s. These people had a real disciplined long-term strategy for taking power. Uh, they had a really clear vision of what they would like the world to look like and how to get there. I saw one comment, I quote this in the article, I can't remember, there was a scholar who was writing about Milton Friedman, I can't remember his name, but he, he remarked on how Friedman uh, was just an amazing mixture of an idealist uh, with a really long-term uh, vision. At the same time, he had a real good sense of how to uh, get involved in practical politics on a day-to-day level. I'm not sure we've got anything like that. I'm not sure we have either the, the vision of what we would like to see in the long-term society to look like or really how to get there. It's much more of a, a pragmatic, experimental thing. And there's this, also this tendency on the the left that has lingered since the 60s and is you know, stepping away from a hostility towards Leninism of anything that looked like organizational or ideological discipline. You know, it's like that way lies authoritarianism, the gulag. Um, and the right was never shy about that and, and frankly um, uh, used Leninist strategies. I mean, a lot of the people who engineered the, uh, the, the right wing takeover of the Republican Party came out of uh, uh, communist and Trotskyist backgrounds and uh, were quite willing to redeploy uh, the organizational um, uh, uh, skills that they learned uh, during those days to, um, to to manage their takeover. For people on the left who are shy about that kind of ruthlessness, um, I don't think we can duplicate that, that kind of success. Uh, and I do worry about that as a, as a longer-term challenge for, for our people. We just uh, don't have that clear view of what the society should look like or how to get there. Well, I, I do want to talk about some of the internal debates over ideological and political discipline within DSA. But first, we should point out that electoral politics is just one part of DSA. And in many chapters, a rather small part. Here in Rhode Island, there's an eco-socialist campaign against the utility national grid. Other chapters are organizing tenants or encouraging members to join critical industries like logistics and transportation. How do you see electoral politics in these sort of like issue-based grassroots organizing campaigns relating to each other in the various ways that they do all over the country. Yeah, I went into, you know, researching this piece, uh, thinking that in some sense, you know, this is, and this is a common view on the far left, that electoral politics and real, isn't real politics, you know, real politics is, is organizing people for more transformational ends than just electing a candidate. So, you know, I, I did subscribe to some degree that there was an opposition between these two um, practices. In talking to people who are deep into DSA, I, I, it came clear to me that these are not at all uh, in opposition. That, for example, you know, the Sanders campaign, very electoral, but it did bring in a whole lot of people interested in, in uh, campaigns beyond uh, that election. The um, you know, the campaigns at the local level for city council in Chicago um, you know, fed on other kinds of organizing work, but also built it. So if you come into the, these kinds of electoral uh, campaigns from uh, other kinds of politics and with a sense of you know, like do other politics beyond the electoral, then these things can be synergistic. They can feed each other so that you can have an organization, uh, you know, a tenants organization that uh, gets involved with some um, campaign to have somebody better in the city council. So when you have a tenant grievance, you can have somebody who'll listen to your arguments uh, in a position of power. But then, you know, once you've got that, that 
candidate elected, you also have to organize to keep that candidate honest and uh, push the kinds of issues that you elected that candidate to promote. So, yeah, there's a... And to back those candidates in fights with other elected officials who are hostile yeah, to the agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, I interviewed Julia Salazar, who uh, is a DSA uh, member who uh, was elected to the state Senate in New York. Uh, and she said her very presence in, in the state Senate has uh, enabled some of the Democrats there to um, bring out their inner leftist in ways that didn't exist before. Uh, she said that they saw um, that she managed to get elected without real estate money, by you know actively spurning real estate money. And in New York politics, you know, real estate is just so profoundly important. It's probably the most dominant single sector in, in state politics. The fact that she was able to get elected by spurning real estate, running against real estate, uh, inspired them um, to maybe um, you know, vote for some tenant protections, which are up in the state Senate this year. There can be an, an effect beyond just getting your own candidate elected. You can also just you know, change the, the nature of, of, of the body beyond your particular um, set of candidates. These, these things are not in opposition and that you know, people uh, – there are different um, – emphases. Uh, you know, certain groups are more likely to push the electoral campaign. Uh, some people are likely to organize uh, outside the electoral realm, but uh, very few who take an either-or attitude uh, uh, towards it. You write that DSA is quite different from the median socialist group you've encountered during your decades on the left and in the political wilderness, that despite all the drama one hears about, that the internal vibe is actually pretty good, mostly. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of chapters around the country that have had problems, really serious disputes, uh, civil wars almost. But that doesn't seem to be the, the dominant mode at all. And, you know, in New York, which is famous for being cantankerous and, and, and difficult, um, everything I've seen is there's stuff going on under the surface, yeah. But, you know, everything I've seen, I've seen is pretty... Um, pretty collegial. Uh, you know, I go to these chapter meetings and people treat each other with respect. There's no weirdness and, and hostility that you, know, you would see in um, left uh, organizations in the 80s and 90s. Um, it has an entirely different feel, like people working together in common purpose uh, with, with, with uh, a genuine experience of comradeship. Now, who knows if it can last, but um, I found it, you know, for someone in my generation, used to a whole lot of really um, dysfunctional and hostile um, kinds of organizations. Um, see this kind of collegiality and, and decency. It's, it's really inspiring. I hope it can continue. Um, who knows? I mean, but, you know, this organization has grown from tenfold in the space of a couple of years. So uh, uh, anything like that is going to have some growing pains, but it seems to be doing pretty well to me. Yeah. And I think it's just important to convey if we haven't enough already for younger listeners and those newer to the left, just how marginal socialists were until very recently, not just socialists, but the the left as a whole, even even through its big moments, like the, the anti-globalization movement of the late 90s turn of the century well yeah quite a lot of those that those movements i felt like a real dinosaur around those people because i think they a lot of them were pretty hostile to the idea of socialism it seemed statist and you know bureaucratic and top downish uh and so there's the this strong anarchist quality to it uh, a yeah. lot of that stuff and they just you know I, I felt like the Leninist dinosaur uh, in, in those kinds of groups. You just didn't use the word socialist. You never heard the word socialist. Um, I remember talking to Joanne Landy at a conference, you know, uh, probably about 15 years ago, and she said, "You know, I'm a lifelong socialist. I'm afraid to use the word." Um, and I remember that same feeling. You just felt so bizarre using the very word. 
And it's just so strange to me now that look, Gallup was out the other day with a poll showing 42 or 43 percent of Americans saying that they like socialism in some sense. It's not clear what they mean by that, but um, it's a remarkable change that the word has lost all its toxicity that it once had, even on, on the left, which, you know, like I said, was often um, anti-socialist. Well, in the anti-capitalist left in the of the late 90s that I was involved in as a as a teenager, the way that I typically encountered a socialist organization was a member of one of many small organizations attempting to sell me a newspaper, including or, or you know, like denouncing Noam Chomsky outside of a speech he was about to give because of some bizarre miscontextualization of something Chomsky had said once. And I, it was not it was not very attractive. <laughs> you know, there was also I mean, that was the uh, the days when the ISO was trying to take over things. Uh, so it developed a bad reputation. I mean, it does. Uh, and I don't mean to diss the ISO. I mean, there's a lot of things I, I respect about uh, that former organization, but you know, it did create this um, bad vibe for uh, young activists in those days uh, who, who saw the ISO and, and similar like Leninist uh, organizations, democratic centralist organizations, um, as uh, secretive and manipulative and devious and you know, ambitious. Well, for all the ISO's failings, there were far, far weirder, more problematic groups out there in the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Well, it was the Spartacist League, of course, which is my favorite. They, they, I, I just love reading Workers' Vanguard for years and years because it was such an entertaining combination of uh, a tabloid sensibility with uh, a, you know, rig, rig, rigid Leninist Trotskyist politics. But uh, uh, half their efforts seem to be devoted to attacking the ISO as fake socialists or fake Trotskyists. Uh, they actually would reprint um, their opponents' uh, attacks on them in a series called Hate Trotskyism, Hate the Spartacist League. So that kind of weird. You know, this <laughs> is an organization with maybe 50 <laughs> members. You know? yeah. then, uh, then they had, you know, they would have schisms, uh, like the, the 1917 Bolshevik tendency crowd split out of the Spartacist League over something or other. And they would have a... Uh, yeah, uh, if people think Twitter is bad, I mean, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, 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 this, the Bolshevik tendency used to have a table at the Socialist Scholars Conference, which I think are only like two members of it. But, you know, most of their literature was about attacking the Spartacist League. <laughs> it's just, it's so delightful to see um, all that stuff recede from view and see, um, you know, a real serious, um, radical but engaged in the real world kind of movement that, that DSA represents. Including the entry of uh, a lot of great organizers from ISO, which had a lot of people involved with it that I truly admire. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and uh, it's it's great to see those people now in DSA and uh, bringing their, their years of experience. And, you know, ISO um, was founded uh, in the late 70s, uh, and their lifespan coincided with pretty much with the, the most marginal period in the history of the American left. Reaganism and Clintonism. Yeah. And, you know, they, they were fighting a good fight, but uh, badly outnumbered. And uh, no one really knew what to do at that point because he just felt so weird and outnumbered and obsolete. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't want to spend too much time criticizing. They did a lot of good work no. and, and I, I, I admire a lot of what they did. Um, and it's great to see some of their people uh, now in DSA and bring in uh, new life to a socialist, helping bring new life to this um, socialist movement. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by the Socialism 2019 Conference, 
which is taking place this July 4th through 7th in Chicago. Socialism 2019 is the largest socialist conference in North America. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, and socialists fighting for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, and organizing their workplaces and social movements. Participate in panels and discussions on black feminism, radical film, reparations, Palestinian liberation, and the socialist case for open borders. Speakers at Socialism 2019 include Naomi Klein, David Harvey, Astra Taylor, Amy Goodman, Anand Gopal, Francis Fox Piven, me, Dan Denver, and many more. Teacher strike leaders from the past year will come together at the conference with other teachers and union organizers to share experiences, inspire, and strategize. Socialism 2019 Conference is organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin and is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Visit socialismconference.org to register today. That's socialismconference.org. And make sure to register before May 31st for the early bird discount rate. So we have rightly and importantly emphasized the general good vibes going on, but there are debates and, as you've alluded to, even some drama. Some are differences in emphasis and some are at a more core strategic and ideological level. There are different approaches to organization and structure between local organizing and focusing on national issues like Medicare for All. There's differences over electoral politics and Bernie. And, and there's a lot of space for these kind of differences because DSA is both heavily decentralized in terms of the relationship between the national organization, which is run by the National Political Committee, and local chapters. And so there's just this incredible number of tendencies compared to maybe any other American socialist group ever. I don't know. <laughs> but my, my, my question is, what are the major points of differences within the organization? Yeah, well, the um, I guess the... the, the biggest bone of uh, contention or the biggest um, attraction and detraction is this group that originated as that Jacobin generation in DSA, the left caucus that went through any number of metamorphoses and is now known as Bread and Roses, also previously known as Spring and Momentum. And a lot of people outside the, uh, that caucus really are very suspicious of them. They view them as kind of closet Leninists, uh, plotters uh, uh, who want to take and over heavily their associated with Jacobin, yes. not for no, yeah. not for no reason. Yes, and uh, the combination of there's like what six or seven of them on the National Political Committee. They they don't have a majority, but that is the, it's the most dominant single force uh, on the National Political Committee. Uh, they have Jacobin, uh, a lot of substantial overlap between uh, that uh, caucus and, and the Jacobin uh, editors and contributors. And though not entirely, I'm a member of no particular caucus, and Thea, my partner, is uh, affiliated with Socialist Majority. So it's still, which caucus, still a multi-tendency uh, uh, which, publication. Which are you in? Socialist Majority. Oh, no, Thea is Socialist Majority. I'm no caucus at all. Oh, yeah, I'm no caucus either. Um, but anyway, I think there's a lot of – they, they get a lot of unfair um, press. Uh, they are uh, very contemptuous of horizontalism, like all those kind of Occupy anarcho tendencies that uh, were, were – prominent in that 
uh, you know, the Occupy phase of the American left believe in some kind of organizational and ideological focus. They don't believe in this prefiguration that we want to you know, create society we want to live in with um, our little park encampments and things like that. They really are organized uh, to um, push their line within DSA and elect their people to positions of leadership. And some people outside the group see them, you know, like Leninist plotters and you know, secretive and centralizing and all those things. There's also a lot of disagreement around whether they're class reductionists or not. I think that's uh, kind of an unfair rap. They, in their principles, they, they, they talk about the various oppressions besides class, race, and gender, and sexuality, and sexual identification, gender identification. You know, they, they do probably emphasize class in, in that kind of Jacobin way more than a lot of people uh, are comfortable with, but you know, they, I think they're also um, unfairly caricatured as being um, indifferent to, to non-class forms of oppression. You, you write that people are both critical of them kind of un, unfairly and also their the sort of premise of their approach that DSA is too wildly horizontalist is also kind of unfair. That was your sort of assessment. This is one of the problems I have with all these caucuses that you find more differences within the caucuses than you might expect, but also uh, fewer differences between them than you might expect. And I'm not sure that uh, the caucus uh, structure does anything but accentuate those differences. Uh, And I think several of the other caucuses were founded to be the not bread and roses or the not momentum. Um, I think that's some people think that's the major reason for a socialist majority to exist. But they also, uh, some people think that bread and roses is, is, is too ideological, um, too Marxist maybe, too much like older styles of socialist organization. Uh, a lot of the people who came out of the ISO have gravitated towards bread and roses. Uh, I guess they feel more at home in that kind of more disciplined uh, approach. You know, on the other hand, you know, Bread and Rose's view of the rest of DSA is that they're not a bunch of Occupy hippies. You know, they're not about to go camp out in parks and uh, <laughs> and prefigure their new society through their you know drum circles and all that. I mean, it's like, camping out in parks for recreational purposes exclusively. <laughs> yes, fun. Yes, Bread and Roses. We 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 do like both Bread and Roses, but. Um, the conflicts between bread and roses and everyone else really went. Uh, they came to a head in a couple of of of, of local chapters. One is the Philadelphia one, uh, and uh, the other that uh, is is got the hottest the hottest internal fights is the East Bay Caucus. Yeah, I really paid most of my attention in researching this piece to what was going on in Philadelphia, and uh, it was well because it it ultimately the local drama in Philly ultimately blew up what was the spring caucus we're getting into deep inside baseball now but i know some listeners will appreciate this it ultimately blew up blew up the spring caucus and it was because of of Philly DSA which has a ton of local drama around structure and also its leadership's hostility to so-called identity politics it ultimately showed ironically that the spring caucus is not quite the class reductionist caricature. It, it, they have a different way of analyzing these things than I do, but they're not quite what people maybe thought they were because they basically kicked out Philly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of people around Philly. I spent some time talking to uh, the, one of the leaders of the, the, the dominant faction there, uh, Dustin Guastella, um, but also a lot of the people uh, in the dissident uh, crew, Lilac. And uh, the, a lot of the complaints were that the, the dominant crew, which were 
Momentum members uh, really had a very um, uh, strict view of, of class versus politics. Uh, they thought that anything that uh, addressed race uh, or gender was divisive and almost you know, like the, the slippery slope to neoliberalism. And you know, I, I, certainly, you know, the um, Hillary Clinton campaign has a lot to answer for. But you know, that the way those uh, mainstream Democrats have cynically used you know, race and gender to discredit uh, the left has been uh, very, very damaging. But you know, we shouldn't pay them uh, the credit of actually taking them seriously. <laughs> and yeah, it doesn't mean that racism and sexism are not right. extremely pervasive and even fundamental to. The operation of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you're talking about material reality, the organization of labor markets, the distribution of property, you know, race and gender figure very importantly <laughs> in those things. Uh, there's nothing uh, di- diversionary or secondary about that at all. But the Philly uh, leadership really thought so. And uh, I'm sad to say uh, there, uh, that someone I've known and admired for many years, Adolf Reed, has had a, a very strong influence on that, that group that any attention to race and gender is you know, is, is you know, the, the road to Hillaryism. It's been very distressing to, to watch um, that this play out in, in Philadelphia. Uh, there is a famous review that uh, one of the members of that group, Melissa Natchek, did of um, uh, Assad Haider's uh, book, uh, Mistaken Identity. And it was, I thought, a really dishonest piece of hack work. But it was all the result of an internal fight uh, within the Philly um, uh, DSA chapter over whether to have a reading group based on that book. And the uh, the leadership didn't even want to have a reading group based on that book. Um, you know, it's like, so if, you, if you've got uh, the leadership forbidding people from reading books, it's just not a very good look. They're also, they, they didn't want to get involved in local politics. They wanted to subordinate everything to the Bernie campaign and Medicare for All. There were uh, promising uh, possibilities for uh, elections to the Philadelphia City Council that uh, the chapter didn't want to get involved in. I talked to one woman who was running uh, for the city council who was trying to get their endorsement and uh, couldn't even figure out what the process was for getting it. And this is a city where Larry Krasner was elected DA, where there's a lot of, where there's a big vibrant left outside of DSA that's been pretty effective at getting results. Yeah. And there are actually, there are two seats in the city council reserved for members of the non-dominant party, which would mean somebody who's not a Democrat. So uh, that would be a, you know, opening for, for DSA to run set of independent candidacy and establish itself and as you know, some sort of pre-party formation or whatever. Uh, but they were not interested in that either. It was all about Bernie and, you know, they would manipulate the agenda so that things couldn't be discussed or discussed only the last minute or things would get postponed, getting involved, you know, anything non-electoral too, like tenant organizing or, you know, anti-gentrification efforts or anti-racist or anti-police brutality efforts. Those are all, uh, you know, seen as, as distractions and, and marginal. And it was getting really, really quite ugly. The leadership of what was then Momentum was quite distressed um, by uh, what was going on. In spring, I keep keep losing track of all their their, their rebirth names, and they eventually uh, just basically reformed the organization so they could purge uh, the Philadelphia crew. And so, from what I hear now, that there's not much going on in the Philadelphia um, caucus, which is unfortunate given um, what a, what a live lively left there is elsewhere in that city. And, and I guess some of the people um, objected to my writing. Uh, about this because uh, it was a distract. It was just like gossipy was one criticism I got from a Bread and Roses member on Facebook. But I think um, it did bring out, it did sort of purify uh, to some kind of toxic essence the nature of the, the, these the 
that tendency in these these kinds of fights is uh, these are things that have plagued the left you know for a hundred years at least um, you know the questions of centralization versus decentralization of spontaneity versus organization is how focused to be on class issues versus other things you know these are these are real issues that people disagree on um but it just reached such an extreme in philadelphia that uh, it, it was... it's not gossip no it's not i it's mean it's the it, politics of an internal it's the politics of an organization that's politically important yeah uh, yeah everything about this is really important like how do, how do we organize these things how much discipline um uh, do you have as an organization a dsa's charter prohibits people uh from joining who are members of democratic centralist or, uh, organizations okay we don't like democratic centralism in DSA, but then just how disciplined should we be? Uh, how rigorous should the enforcement mechanisms uh, for chapters and members to follow um, the party line? Um, you don't want to be so loose as to be uh, you know, fly apart and be completely ineffective. You don't want to be so tight that uh, you end up as you know, rigid and marginalized and, and, and dead. Um, so it, the, the, these, both the ideological and organizational questions are really, really serious and, and important and uh, things that uh, – that uh, need to be worked out uh, over the longer term with DSA. You know, like the Sanders campaign. There's a, some people, and this is the line of Jacobin Magazine now. It does, it seems, as well as well as the Bread and Roses uh, tendency. Really want to put a lot of eggs in the Bernie basket. I have some reservations about this. Um, it's quite possible he may not. You know, he, he's. I think it's unlikely he's going to win the Democratic nomination, but he might not even do that well uh, in, in the primary campaign. So I'm concerned about uh, getting too deeply involved in, in the Bernie campaign. A lot of the people who are support that idea think that uh, it does a lot of magic. It draws people into the movement. Uh, it uh, will be good for the long-term development of, of, of the socialist movement in the country. Uh, I hope so, but I don't know. Maybe not. Or Medicare for all. Like uh, there uh, in New York State, there's a campaign for a, uh, a state-level Medicare, which is economically feasible and not politically impossible. But there's some people uh, within uh, the New York DSA who don't want to get involved in the state one. They want to get involved in the national one. But uh, national Medicare for all, given the structure of the U.S. Senate and certainly the, even the House of Representatives at this moment, it's impossible to imagine it's passing nationally, which doesn't mean it's not worth fighting for for the long term. But if you go look at the state level, California, New York, these are real possibilities of having some kind of state level single payer plan. So how much uh, effort do you put in fighting for that versus fighting for the national one? How much effort do you put into city council campaigns versus uh, the, the, the Sanders presidential campaign? Real questions that no one has really figured out the answer to yet. Looking forward to the convention in August, what should DSA members and fellow travelers who are listening be expecting? Well, I don't know. I'm curious about how many of these fights are going to come out to the open. Well, perhaps they should come out to the open, but what, how, how collegial will they be? Will the collegiality of the organization uh, survive that, that, uh, that convention? I don't know. We'll find out, you know, we'll find out uh, a lot some of these, the, the sentiment around a lot of these organizational and, and political questions of how to, um, how much discipline, how much, uh, how, how should we allocate our um, efforts? Who's, going to get elected to the National Political Committee, what kind of tendencies uh, will be represented. I think it's very much up in the air. We don't really know. Uh, and most members, I think, are detached from all these caucus struggles 
Uh, most members are not in caucuses. Most of the caucuses have only a few hundred members. Um, most are involved so, in concrete local work. Yeah. And, you know, how will they come together? How will, will they compare notes? And I think having, you know, a nationally coordinated organization that is also deeply involved in, in local struggles is, is a, a great model uh, for how to do politics. I once heard a uh, talk uh, about uh, the evolution of the Swedish Social Democratic Party. And uh, Sweden, a very small country compared to the United States, but even there, you know, they started the, low, the lowest levels of politics and worked their way up to build the Social Democratic Party in Sweden. Uh, that's one of the things that makes me nervous about putting too much emphasis on the Sanders campaign. The presidency is the bourgeoisie's office. I mean, it really is a tough nut to crack, whereas all kinds of people get into city councils or s- state legislatures. You know, that, that that's a rich area of possibility. And the right has been very skilled and strategic about targeting state legislatures. You know, the, the, uh, the Cook brothers and Alec have been funding state-level legislation and, and uh, state uh, uh, legislative candidates for a few decades now and making a big difference. Uh, the, the, the state legislatures draw um, district boundaries. You know, the states themselves can pass legislation that has a tremendous effect, especially if it's nationally coordinated in the way that Alec has been doing. Uh, you know, all these abortion laws that are being written, the criminalization of dissent that we're seeing in a whole bunch of states now, uh, ALEC legislation. Um, so we, we need to take these state-level races very, very seriously. And uh, the focus on you know, Bernie at all expenses, I think, would, would marginalize those state-level um, campaigns. So and I think this, this will probably come out of the convention. Um, Maria Svart, the, the director of DSA, says that she likes the caucuses because they bring those differences out in the open. I hear a lot of people, other people complaining that they just uh, uh, lead to division. And, uh, you know, a lot of the reaction to my piece uh, coming from members of the various caucuses uh, focused on just what I said about their caucus, not what, you know, the, the 200 words I might have said about their caucus rather than the 5,300 other words I said about the national organization. So I don't know, there's, there, there is a certain degree of caucus narcissism that gets stimulated that may not be very productive. I, I thought a, a really positive thing about your, your piece was that it talked about some of these difficult controversies and debates that are pretty well known within DSA, but not, but not so much externally, but in doing so showed that there was actually that these debates revealed that there was a lot of consensus within the organization, you know, like spring caucuses attacked for being class reductionist. But when it came down to it, they separated from Philly DSA, but precisely because they were committed, actually, maybe not with the same analysis I have, but to also fighting racism and sexism and that that's normal in the organization. Yeah, that was one of the points of contention with the, uh, the Philadelphia crew who objected to that language in, 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 in their national platform. Because it was, you know, too identitarian, and you know, God, that that word really needs to be uh, <laughs> put out to pasture. You know, it's just uh, there are a whole lot of complicated issues uh, that really need to be worked out there, uh, and uh, the, this dismissive use of identitarian is just really bad, um, and uh, we need to put that away. Yeah, I think there, there's a almost like a marketing need. To accentuate, if you have a caucus, you need to you know, accentuate your brand, and you accentuate your brand by exaggerating the differences between you and everyone else. And I'm not sure that is really a great, uh, a great impulse for an organization like DSA, which is, you know, young and vigorously growing, but uh, um, 
we don't know where it's going to go. We want to like help this thing stay together and not not fly apart uh, on the basis of uh, internal dissension. And uh, the the reaction that I've got for some of the caucuses that uh, was seemed like symptoms of uh, of caucus narcissism were were not uh, not inspiring. But on the other hand, like I said. Very few members of DSA are in caucuses. I think that the non-caucus caucus is the largest of all. Well, Doug Henwood, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Doug Henwood is an economic journalist and host of the weekly Jacobin radio show, Behind the News, which originates on KPFA Berkeley. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that changes in the economic foundation lead sooner or later to the transformation of the whole immense superstructure. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, sometimes, like this week, twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, also, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help. Mm-hmm.